morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending where you are in the world. It's a pleasure to have you join us today. I'm Andrew Seeley, the president of the Migration Policy Institute. Welcome to the, to the webinar, The State of Global Human Mobility, more than two years into the pandemic. This webinar launches a special report, COVID-19 in the State of Global Mobility in 2021, the second installment in a partnership between the International Organization for Migration, IOM, and the Migration Policy Institute, MPI. Um, which is seeking to analyze the impact of COVID-19 on international mobility, drawing from an IOM database, mapping travel and health measures and border closures around the world. And I wanna thank everyone at IOM who we've worked with on behalf of MPI, uh, particularly the folks at, at the DTM, uh, the DTM tracking office, um, really appreciate the collaboration and everyone at the director general's office as well. Um, this is a fast moving policy area and our analysis had to adapt as the pandemic has gone on. We did an exercise like this a year ago and things have developed uh, significantly in the past year. Um, the virus is of course better understood and countries policies have adapted to respond to that. At the same time, we are dealing with a proliferation of health requirements and exceptions to travel restrictions um, fueled in 2021 by the distribution of vaccines, um, which has changed how we can measure and understand the highly complex travel systems that have developed. And certain metrics that we used to rely on have lost their saliency, like case counts, um, particularly as at-home tests become more available and case counts become less reliable as a metric for the impact of COVID um, on public health overall. Um, as the pandemic has turned endemic, we need to think critically about how we assess and analyze countries' mobility policies, the implications these have for travelers and migrants, and their effectiveness in achieving public health goals. At the same time, we need to reflect on the lessons we've learned over the past two years in measuring the pandemic and what we can carry forward to our analysis of mobility uh, writ large in case there's another pandemic out there. And, and this is something my colleague Megan Benton talks about a lot, but this is, you know, we knock on wood, all of us, we, we hope this does not happen soon again, but we also shouldn't assume this is the last pandemic and we should be learning lessons that help us manage this better in the future. Undertaking all of this requires cooperation. Um, across institutions, across countries, and across a wide set of expertise. MPI and IOM's collaboration helps accomplish this, producing innovative evidence-based knowledge that can help inform operational, strategic, and policy decisions on multiple levels, and we look forward to continuing this collaboration. And in the spirit of taking stock and learning lessons and planning for the future, our speakers are going to consider these key questions. How the situation has evolved in the second year of the pandemic, what steps governments have taken to restart international travel and migration in safe and efficient ways? How uh, do we adapt as new variants emerge in different places around the world? Um, and as countries create exceptions to mobility restrictions for certain groups of travelers, what does this increasingly complex picture reveal about the inequalities between who can move and who cannot? A significant question. We have a really great group of speakers today. Um, we have Elizabeth Collette, a special advisor for policy and strategy to the Director General of the International Organization for Migration. She's also our former colleague, I'm very proud to say, at MPI, and was the founding director of MPI Europe. Uh, Liz, great to have you with us. Um, Mauricio Di Lulo, Senior Advisor, uh, Council of the European Union. Um, he's gonna look at European Union's reopening the shift from country-based to person-based approaches and reflections on, on planning for the next pandemic. We have Elaine Sana, excuse me, Ellen Sana, um, who's the Executive Director, Center for Migrant Advocacy in the Philippines. She's gonna discuss concerns around inequities of health requirements, what the emergency measures governments and other stakeholders need to take to safely manage mass repatriation or stranded migrants during the next pa pandemic, and what is needed to build migrants into health responses from the get-go. We have with us also James Wiltshire, the Assistant Director for External Affairs at International Air Transport Association, IATA, a very key player in transportation around the world, who will discuss on what's holding back a full return to pre-pandemic levels of air travel and what have been the regional differences in recovery in air travel. And finally, and the one we will start with is actually my colleague, Megan Benton, who is Director of International Research and Migration Policy Institute. And she's gonna discuss the main findings from the report. My pleasure to turn it over to Megan. Thank you so much, um, Andrew. Um, you know, I'm really excited to be launching this report today and just to echo those words of thanks. We're so grateful uh, to the IOM team, but also to the MPI team, you know, both teams did really painstaking work in logging and coding these measures and analyzing all the different rules and exceptions and regional stories at a time when things were changing so fast. You know, this is a really data rich report, but it also often felt like a kind of moving target and we were trying to keep up with a constantly shifting picture. So it was a huge undertaking. Um, 
So I'm gonna talk a little bit about what the report says, but you know, where are we in May, 2022? I think it's fair to say that we've finally reached a, a tipping point in most countries where we've shifted to managing COVID as endemic, which I think means a point of no return in terms of opening up, um, opening up borders and lifting travel restrictions. You know, many even COVID, zero COVID countries are lifting restrictions. Most recently, I think Taiwan has reduced the number of days in quarantine and the health minister there is talking about coexisting with the virus. This is one of the last zero COVID holdouts. But I think it's fair to say that global mobility rules have been among the least rational and least predictable of all the COVID protocols in recent years. And they've had this kind of sticky effect to them where they've been maintained, sometimes even when they're serving limited public health benefits. So this is the 2021 report and it compares what happened in 2021 with 2020. And I think perhaps one really striking finding is how little changed despite such massive advances in therapeutics and of course, most importantly, vaccines. You know, many thought that these would be a silver bullet and herald a return to normal uh, and less changed than you might think. So perhaps Lisa could just put slide one on the screen. Um, if you look at the sheer volume of rules, meaning both entry bans and travel restrictions, but also health measures, there are still over 100,000 in place also now, not just the end of 2021, which is, I think, quite staggering. Of course, that is very much the top level finding. So if you dig below this picture, it's more complex. There's been, uh, over time, a shift from restricting movement to managing it, a shift from country-level bans to requirements that target individuals, like testing or vaccine requirements that you can see quite clearly from this slide. Uh, slide two, please. And the second thing I wanted to note is that exceptions have really become the rule. So instead of dismantling border restrictions from the first waves of the pandemic, in many cases, we've sort of layered exemptions onto these. So initially nationals and residents and diplomats and healthcare workers and business travelers, but increasingly, as you can see from this slide, vaccinated travelers who show up as other in this chart. And you can also see here, which I think is interesting, a growth in exemptions for children who are you know, often not eligible for vaccines to clarify that they can still enter and skip quarantine. You know, exemptions are a powerful tool. They serve really important policy objectives. You know, the US, for instance, has an exemption to its vaccination requirement for travelers coming from a country that has lower than 10% of the population vaccinated. So an important equity goal there, but it does add to the overall complexity, I think, of the global mobility system. Next slide, please. The third thing I wanted to highlight, I think this is especially important when we think about the potential future trajectory of restrictions, is variants and how mobility restrictions have responded to variants. So if you look at what happened in 2021, you can see from this slide, we have four variants here, the timing of travel restrictions wasn't especially well targeted or very consistent across regions or across different variants. So some imposed route restrictions um, once the WHO designated a variant as a variant of concern. But in other cases, uh, countries waited until cases had really ballooned and were in global circulation. And we saw with Omicron in particular just how difficult it was to time restrictions to prevent the arrival of the variant. Crucially, I think that doesn't mean that it's not worth tightening up travel restrictions at a time of a new variant, but it does point to the limitations of these country level travel bans rather than general mitigation measures that sort of turn down the volume of movements across the board. Next slide, please. And then the other final sort of data thing I wanted to know is extremely different regional stories here. So if you look at the Association of Southeast Asian Nations region, ASEAN, it's relied primarily on travel restrictions and it also has a high level of exceptions um, sort of flowing from that. If you look at Europe, it had a high level of restrictions, but it also had health measures, in part because it had kind of different regimes, uh, still does, for intra-EU and extra-EU travel. In the Caribbean and sub-Saharan Africa phased out most travel restrictions pretty early on, and then you see a steep rise in health measures. Um, and then, of course, the big difference um, uh, that you can also see is depending on whether or not countries were pursuing a, a zero COVID or eradication strategy or a mitigation strategy. But we say in the report, and you can look at some charts there, that 
you know, there's a lot more convergence in regional approaches than there was before. Now that populations have reached a certain level of vaccination, but also because of the high transmissibility of new variants. Just with my remaining couple of minutes, perhaps Lisa could take the, the slides off. I just wanted to mention just a couple of policy trends uh, that we discuss in the report um, and some recommendations. One of the big things that happened in 2021 was, of course, the rise of digital COVID passes. So this is an interesting trend. Initially, countries were going it alone. But what we saw in the second half of 2021 was consolidation around the big four um, sort of frameworks, the EU Digital COVID Certificate, the ICAO framework, the Smart Cards framework, and DIVOC in India, uh, and increasing countries joining one of these four systems. But there's still quite limited interoperability between these systems. That means that, for instance, the verifier um, being used by the Australians can't verify the EU digital COVID certificate. Lots of people, including me, still only have access to our paper records anyway. Uh, that includes most of the US population. What we say in the report is if you want to get a return to mobility at scale, yet still maintain vaccine checks, we'll need to automate elements of these procedures. That means giving people the ability to submit documents in advance, um, having some kind of digital verification. And I'm hoping that James will talk a little bit about some of the burdens that these new health requirements really place on transport carriers and airlines. Um, I think it's interesting with this digital credentialing discussion, you know, there's a big question mark about whether these systems will become permanent. And I think it's been interesting to see a sort of split between different, different approaches. You know, the EU always suggested that EU DCC was an emergency measure. Um, but places like India and Africa are really using the pandemic to build out the digital infrastructure and think about how this can become a mechanism for responding to future diseases. So develop the Indian system, it's already being adapted to keep records of other vaccinations such as polio. Um, but I think we also need to reflect on the other significant direction of travel, which is towards vaccination becoming the sole ticket to cross-border mobility rather than just a, a fast track. So, you know, we feel like everything's opening up, but this is a, a real trend. You know, in January, only 38 countries required vaccination as the only way to get in. By March, it was 65. This is the only pathway to enter the country for, for most groups of people. And there are, of course, real concerns here about how this carves a divide between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, especially at a time when only 16% of those in low-income countries have even received one COVID dose. Now, the international institutions have been a bit skeptical about uh, vaccine requirements. You know, WHO uh, said that the equity issues were such that it warns against, recommends against countries introducing such requirements, but it's also been quite realistic now. So it's piloting a system that would allow, uh, that would be able to verify any digital health credentials. So I think there's a kind of realism that these requirements, these credentials are here to stay. Um, and that's a growing realism, you know, across the board. I don't think that we're gonna go back to normal on a lot of this stuff. The world of migration and cross-border mobility is quite radically and permanently changed. Um, so the question is, you know, what do we keep? What happens next? How do we make the system more rational, sensible, less costly to individuals and businesses and airlines? Um, and um, just to close, what we argue in the report is that we need to be thinking about a set of principles, not just for this pandemic, but also for the next one, to avoid the chaos and the shutdown that we saw in spring 2020. And what we say is that we think the rules around global mobility need to be clear, equitable, streamlined and future focused. Clear in that the rules should enable travelers, migrants, businesses, people who rely on cross-border movements to plan their lives amid some degree of predictability. That means streamlining the existing rules, changing them less frequently, and publishing metrics for moving between stages um, and for what would happen with a future outbreak. Equitable means we need to minimize costs. You know, that means capping testing costs, using quarantine sparingly. We talk at MPI about creating the enabling infrastructure for vaccination. So not just focusing on verification, but how do you offer opportunities to get vaccinated throughout the travel and mobility pipeline? So for instance, by allowing vaccination on arrival. By streamline, we mean that mean the border restrictions should expire by default in absence of robust evidence that they're serving an important benefit. That can also include um, things like interoperability in digital systems, uh, risk assessments as far away from the physical border as possible, and also these broader 
capacity building and infrastructure investments that you need, especially in uh, low and middle, middle income countries and land and maritime border checkpoints. And then finally, future focused, um, Andrew mentioned planning for the next pandemic. This is a lot of what we're doing at MPI. We need systems that can adapt to future public outbreaks with a degree of predictability. Um, and also be thinking about ways that you adapt the built environment of ports of entry so that you can easily reduce congestion um, at these times of public health outbreaks. Um, sorry if that was a bit long. This is a very long report. It's very rich. It was quite tough to summarize uh, in a, a short amount of time. Um, and there's so much in here uh, and so much to take stock of um, uh, in relation to what was a really seismic year, I think, for, for global mobility. Thanks. Thank you, Megan, that was great, really appreciate it. Let me turn it over to Elizabeth Collette who, from IOM, who's gonna to talk to us about um, the main lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic and what we need to think about going forward. Liz. Thanks very much, Andrew, and, and thanks also to Megan for the presentation and MPI as a whole for the collaboration, um, which is a particularly uh, warm one for me. Um, I know that those IOM colleagues that have worked with you on both reports, this is the second in the series, have found it not just a positive experience, but, but also very productive. Um, and I would like to take this moment to recognise the hard work of all of those involved, um, and particularly the team leading IOM's displacement tracking matrix, um, the London team in particular, um, and IOM's matrix team now form part of the flagship global data institute that we launched earlier this year they have put an enormous amount of work in over the last two years in, in collecting this data and, and and also working to put it together but i think as, as megan noted two years into the pandemic we find ourselves at a bit of a pivotal moment to reflect on the experience and the endurance of the pandemic's impact on every aspect of our society but notably on mobility and migrants and I say this particularly because our memories are so short. Um, as Megan notes, we are coming out of a lot of restrictions um, in, in certain countries. I've just returned back from Australia and was shocked to find that despite transiting through two countries, I didn't have to fill out any forms. I didn't have to show any documents. I could just walk back into the country, which uh, seemed very pre-2020 and unusual, but it does show you how quickly some countries have shifted. Um, the way that they are operating for travel systems. And I think we still haven't yet internalized or learned the lessons of, of what it means to think about this in a coordinated way. And until the end of last year, I would have said that 2021 had led to a sort of slow convergence in lightning, as the report says, shifting from blanket restrictions to health measures. But the emergence of the Omicron variant at the end of the year, particularly, I think demonstrated how fragile that convergence is and how quick it is to impose those blanket restrictions uh, once again. They are not far away from us. So while we feel like we're opening up, it's, it's not necessarily, uh, it's, it's an easily reversible trend. And I think that's something we need to, to think about, particularly as we can't rule out future disruptive variants or indeed the emergence of a new contagious virus in the future. And that makes this discussion all the more important. Um, whether to gauge the measures taken by authorities, their timeliness, relevance, coherence, impact, so that we can devise some evidence-based approaches in the management of future pandemics um, and inform preparedness and response. And I think that would include ideally a means to assess the relative value and risk of different measures and restrictions over the course of pandemic on different categories of populations, including on migrants, their families and broader communities. And, and include, as, as Megan has outlined at the end of her presentation, that some common understanding, both in terms of emerging concepts, such as you know, mobility by exception and who qualifies for those exceptions. Do we have a convergence there or do different countries apply different exceptions, creating an enormous amount of complexity, as well as when and how measures and restrictions may be most effectively applied. And we have to find that balance between health security on the one hand, and continued predictable cross-border mobility on the other. And I think we haven't yet found that equilibrium um, in terms of how we manage this. There's a little bit of boom and bust, I think, in some of our policies. IOM has been collecting and processing the data on the impacts of COVID-19 through the Displacement Tracking Matrix, or PTM, as we call it in-house, uh, since March 2020. Um, it's on the operational status of various border crossing points across the world, as well as the different restrictions and travel measures applied on, on, on international air travel in particular. 
This is a whole of organization endeavor. We've been working with colleagues in thematic areas on health and integrated border management, as well as colleagues at the regional and national level. It is not a small endeavor, but one that brings in a large number of entities to report back on what's happening in particular countries, to report back on the impacts of certain, certain um, measures on particular groups. Um, and it's something that we've done also in cooperation with partners such as IATA. And this seeks to understand those measures, distinguish between them and draw out trends. And, and the report with MPI, I think, is particularly important for that. Um, but as with so much of IOM's work, it has practical origins. Within IOM, the data was initially used to respond to the myriad of challenges that, that were suddenly brought on by the pandemic. For us, identifying the location and scale, the number of people who have been stranded by travel restrictions, stranded migrants in countries who were suddenly without support and without a means to return home, and then navigating those policies in order to facilitate their return home. For IOM, it started with a practical a practical uh, concept and then and then gradually uh, moved into to that full uh, matrix that you see um, used in the MPI report. But since that early point, it's been used by national and subnational authorities, it's been used by practitioners, researchers, other international organizations, civil society, we've seen it used by the private sector and the media as well as within IOM. So a lot of different uh, people have been using this data over the last two years. And we will continue to collect this data for as long as uh, COVID-19 continues to impact mobility, but also seeking to, to identify possible areas of improvement. And I think MPI colleagues have already highlighted a few areas where they want to collaborate further on that. But jointly with MPI, I think we're also striving to understand some of the bigger questions that emerge from this report on the future of mobility post-COVID. What will that look like? And what will that look like, particularly at a time of significant global volatility and crisis? And through that, be able to advocate for stronger outcomes for migrants, as well as positive impacts for, for migrants and the societies in which they live. And in that regard, it, it is a function of authorities in the international community to ensure that cross-border mobi mobility safeguard public health and facilitate travel in a way that gives all travelers, including migrants, reasonable costs, manageable criteria for entry, and, and support them to do that. This is an issue that we particularly want to discuss further during the International Migration Review Forum that will take place <coughs> in New York next week. It's an issue that's been raised in many of the regional reviews of GCM implementation, but it's also been flagged in the most recent report of the UN Secretary General on GCM implementation. I think it's an issue that stays sometimes below the, the political parapet, but remains quite important, particularly in the mobility realm, perhaps less considered um, within some of the health sector, you have bigger, bigger issues to, 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 to focus on. But I want to dwell on the bigger picture, which I think Megan's also raised. And it may be easy to dismiss or reduce this conversation to the still very important data points and technical work to address health security at the border, and much of which IOM is involved in across the world. But the pandemic has all too easily brought to light and exacerbated deepest inequalities that are felt around the world, and particularly for those on the move. And with the most dramatic restriction on human mobility in recent history, we feel it's crucial to build back our mobility systems in that safe and inclusive way to ensure healthcare access to all, including vaccination, and avoid the discrimination and stigma associated with those on the move. And this report, particularly its recommendations, I think are crucial to inform those ongoing discussions. The need to learn the lessons of the pandemic um, and essential not just to avoid what, what my boss, the, the, the Director General refers to as a two-tier travel system that might threaten to emerge if we don't address some of these issues, whereby the costs of travel rise beyond the means of many, but also to ensure that migrants and people on the move can fully contribute to post-pandemic recovery and that we can still think about this as, as a global mobility system. So uh, once again, I'd just like to thank colleagues in, in both IOM and, and MPI for this collaboration and, and long may it continue. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Liz. I really appreciate that. And uh, we really appreciate the collaboration with IOM and, and you know, both with the, the GGG's office, which has been fabulous, but also the fabulous, the amazing team you have in, in London with working on the DTM. Um, Mauricio Di Lulo is our next speaker. He is a senior advisor at the Council of the European Union, where he looks at, he's responsible for issues of borders, Schengen, and COVID-19. And Mauricio, you're going to tell us a little bit about the European Union response 
how you're seeing this move forward. Um, go ahead, Maurizio. Thanks, Andrew, for this introduction, and thanks to uh, to Megan for uh, the presentation of the report. Uh, I'm going to uh, give you a, an overview in five minutes of where we stand in the EU. Um, uh, as you know, as, as, as a general principle, the, 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 the EU has always said that uh, before opening up to third countries, the, the, the internal situation uh, had to be uh, stabilized. Um, that's still a principle that we apply. We're seeing now that case numbers are going down. But the pandemic is not over. Uh, if you look only at the EU, uh, we still have 90 million unvaccinated people. Nine million are over 60 years old. We have insufficiently boosted people and we have the risk of possible variants. So what we have used in the past year as a way of opening up both in the EU and uh, from outside the EU into the EU is the digital COVID certificates. 1.7 billion certificates have been issued to date. We have the 27 EU countries, of course, participating, but also uh, 37 countries outside the EU, and uh, th that number is still increasing. Uh, we are currently discussing, uh, or the Council and the European Parliament are currently discussing an extension, an extension that would be for maximum one year, so until June uh, 2023. Uh, just as a reminder, the Commission had proposed this to be an instrument that would apply uh, throughout for all pandemics, but the Council and the Parliament have decided to uh, make it a one-off basically. And so this will expire uh, if this is adopted by, by, by June, 2023. Um, when we look into the EU, 16 uh, member states have lifted all intra-EU restrictions. So that means that still uh, 11 uh, member states have uh, restrictions within the EU. When we look uh, uh, then at the travel into the EU, well, it's still a recommendation that applies, the, 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 the famous recommendation 912, where we have still this mixture of country-based and person-based approaches. Soon, we are going to move to an exclusively person-based approach. Uh, probably we'll have a proposal uh, from the Commission in, in, the next, uh, in the next weeks for this to apply in, uh, within one or two months where we'll have an evolution to a, a completely person-based approach. The issue there, of course, that we will need to, to, to discuss is the person-based approach is based on uh, vaccination or recovery. Uh, so that is something that's, that, uh, that could uh, potentially create mobility issues and that still needs to be uh, discussed in depth within the EU, I would say. Um, Lastly, then, uh, as a conclusion on, on, on the lessons learned of this pandemic and, 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 and possible reflections on planning for the future, I would say uh, three things. One, we need to avoid at all costs the chaos that we have had at the start of this pandemic. Um, within the EU, for example, if you look only within the EU, uh, the, 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 the small centrally located member states, the border regions have been particularly affected. Um, so this, this is really a, a point of concern. Second element is, and that's what we are working right now on, we need to have within the EU a legal base uh, to apply possible uh, uh, restrictions, both uh, uh, border-related restrictions and health-related restrictions in a uniform way, because uh, during this pandemic, we had no legal base, so we had to, to work on the basis of recommendation, basically recommendation that is and has been unevenly applied by, men, by member states, both for intra-EU travel and for travel into uh, the EU. Now we are creating a legal base within what we call the Schengen Borders Code so that we would have a more uniform approach. That would mean that we would not work on the basis of recommendations, but we would work on the basis of what we call in EU jargon, EU parlance, uh, uh, implementing uh, regulations by the Council which means that they would be legally binding for the member states and that they would be applied uniformly. The, the only thing that would happen here is that uh, you, uh, you will have the possibility for member states to apply stricter uh, uh, restrictions, if I may say so, but there would be a uniform base and that would be a, a, a big leap compared to the situation we've been in in the past, uh, in the past two years. 
Uh, and as said, uh, there will be this extension of the digital certificate for one year, but I would say that even when, it, when there, there is another uh, pandemic issue uh, in the future, we will at least have this experience of the digital certificate, which we will be able to use even if uh, the, the legal base will have, been, uh, will have expired, but it will be easier to resurrect if you want. Uh, that's it from my side, thank you. Marizzo, thank you, and, and uh, fascinating. You're, you're actually trying to create order out of chaos here in a, in a way that's very thoughtful. So I know, I know there's a lot of way still to go, but that's that's very, it's very hopeful to hear that you're you're thinking strategically about these issues. Um, it's my pleasure to turn this over next to Ellen Sana. She's the, as I said earlier, the executive director of the Center for Migrant Advocacy in the Philippines, and she is going to look specifically at how workers are affected. Um, by some of the restrictions, um, both in terms of, of those who are going abroad and the, and the requirements they face and in terms of those that are trying to return home. Um, so Ellen, my pleasure to turn it over to you. Thank you, Andrew, and um, greetings to everyone. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in this forum. Uh, I will start by providing an overview of the situation of Filipino migrants in the time of the pandemic. So I would say I would say that two years into the pandemic, close to 1.5 million overseas Filipino migrants had returned to the country, many of them to, to the COVID-19 pandemic. 47% of these were women with the biggest number in domestic work because we are saying that they are not outrightly terminated because they are needed, especially during the time of uh, quarantines. And, uh, but then they are also terminated, apparently. And of course, the, a lot of them come from the GCC countries. Many more remain stranded abroad and, are, and or displaced from their jobs are on no work, no pay arrangements, underpaid and work longer hours in cramped accommodation. On the first year of the pandemic, 2020, deployment was down by 75% from 2 million, uh, more than 2 million in 2019. It went down to half a million, about half a million only. In 2021, it slowly recovered uh, by 35% with a deployment of more than 700,000. In 2020 as well, 83% of our migrant workers were deployed in Asia women migrants comprise 60% of this deployment. And out of these women migrants, 70%, it has increased from 2019, 70% were domestic workers. Further, 12% of the women migrant workers were into sales and services sector, low wage occupation as well, while 7% 7 were professionals, mostly the health professionals. As of January, 2022, 30,783 migrant workers were infected with COVID and 1,240 died of uh, COVID-related deaths. In terms of remittances, total remittance in 2020 slightly dropped by 0.8% from 2019 figures. But November 2022 remittances were even up by more than 5% for the same period in 2021. Where the IOM study of returning migrant workers dated May 2021, more than 80% of the repatriated workers remained unemployed three months after their arrival in the country. 48% said they experienced 60% reduction of income upon return into the country, while 48% expressed desire to remigrate. Back home, of course, for those who have repatriated, they rejoined the millions of local workers who were equally displaced by the pandemic. Reintegration programs and livelihood support are available, but remigration remains high in the list of options for returned uh, migrants and even for others. Not to mention the fact that for more than four decades, of course, indeed the majority of our workers take the migration option more out of compulsion and not out of their own choice. As airports and economic activities are resumed globally, so is the demand for migrant workers. But there will be additional health protocols with accompanying costs. And of course, for the individual migrants, the cost will always be an issue. 
a big issue. Not to mention, of course, a lot of uncertainties and anxieties at the same time. So in terms of the concerns in relation to their mobility, one issue is, of course, access to legitimate uh, sources of information. While uh, it's been said that the Philippines is like a capital in terms of uh, the use of a big population of internet users, more than 50% uh, per a study conducted, more than 50% of the population who use internet uh, rely, uh, use their families and friends and relatives as their sources of information. And uh, that is something that is uh, of critical importance, especially when you have a public uh, health emergency. So access to information and related to this would be uh, the case of the government agency called the POEA. Uh, this is the agency in charge of recruitment and deployment. They made available on their website uh, the requirements for uh, uh, for certain countries of destination. But of course, the language is in English. And of course, it's a requirement that you have to have access to internet to be able to, to, to access the information. And uh, not to mention the fact that uh, there is a state fluidity of the situation and, and things can change anytime. The issue of vaccination, I think uh, by this time, we already have like heard, uh, heard herd immunity, uh, especially in the national capital region. But then the, the, a lot of the migrant workers, because their prioritization in terms of vaccination as early as 2020 has been elevated to the same level as the frontliners. And of course, that is because they wanted to facilitate the deployment of the workers. So, but the issue there is the acceptance of the, the vaccination card. So we had issues initially for workers going, for example, to Hong Kong. And when they presented the vaccination card, it was not accepted because it was not something on par with the global standards. So the, we had to do some changes in that, uh, in that regard. So we may have the vaccine, but then we should, uh, there is a requirement to comply with the internationally accepted vaccination card. Because the other issue is uh, the mandatory swab testing. So it is still a requirement up to this time that even if we are already vaccinated, uh, many countries of destination still require the workers to get a negative uh, results for their RT-PCR. RT-PCR is expensive. It costs about uh, 40, 50 to $60. And uh, su supposedly, this is at no cost to the workers. But then, of course, in reality, it's not uh, necessarily religiously uh, complied with but many of the employers. Not to mention the fact that several that countries would require uh, the vaccination, uh, the swab testing to be done at different hours. So within 48 hours, within 74, 78 hours, within a day before uh, a day before the departure. So it can be also confusing for the migrants if they are not very conscious of these uh, timelines to get the results of the swab test. And of course, it is also a requirement for returning Filipinos to also get um, a swab test. And again, uh, good if they can get it for free, but otherwise they will have to, to pay as well. Quarantines are also required, not as much now for the returning migrants because they are now allowed to have the quarantine in their hometowns, in their, play, in their homes. But for those who are going overseas, like in Hong Kong, they are still required to do the quarantine for 14 days. But employers are okay to uh, make the arrangements, but uh, there are cases where, and, and this is something that is also like uh, mind-boggling to us, they would get a, a negative RT-PCR here, but as soon as they arrive in Hong Kong, they will have uh, another swab test and they, it will yield uh, positive results, positive uh, test results, and immediately the, the employment is cancelled. So everything is cancelled and then the worker is left on their own. And there are situations also that at, uh, a few hours before the, the time of departure, they will get the results, the swab test results, and then it's positive. And then outrightly, their uh, employment contract is terminated. Everything is terminated. But then there were also cases when the, the hospitals giving this test made mistakes. And so what uh, at the end of the day, it's really all, it's all, it's the migrants that have to, to borne all of these uh, issues, no? And it costs. So especially if they travel, they come from uh, another island uh, from the Philippines, they have to travel to Manila to, to get the, 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 the flight. 
Uh, interestingly, in the case of seafarers, uh, earlier on, they've been classified as essential workers. So uh, they, they, uh, their deployment uh, to the, the vessels are facilitated and fast-tracked earlier on uh, in the time of the, the pandemic because of, uh, of course they need to, 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 to carry, to deliver the, the goods and the medicines and, and what have you, no? So those are our issues that are, I think, uh, still uh, haunting our migrant workers, despite the fact that uh, the borders are already opening up. The other issue is in terms of responding to the next pandemic, and of course we join everybody in saying that, uh, God forbid, we don't want another pandemic. But I think uh, that it pays to be more prepared when public emergencies break out and we can draw many lessons, not only from this experience, but from previous ones too, like the wars and uh, civil strife. There would be convergence of, of issues. So top issue, uh, we learned this from the MIKIC, uh, top issues are migrants in countries in crisis would be uh, saving lives and promoting a policy of inclusion for access to humanitarian assistance and relief operations, safe passage. Safe passage is important. If you need to be repatriated, move to a safer ground. Uh, our experience, uh, for example, during the time of uh, the war in Libya was uh, when they were exiting uh, Libya, they were still being required to provide uh, the exit visa at the time when uh, everything was already in chaos. So safe passage, uh, in, especially in the time of emergency is very important. And this would require cooperation of uh, countries origin and, and destination countries in the international community. Of course, access to accurate information and advisories. And, um, and this will also require the cooperation and support of uh, relevant stakeholders. Additionally, for public health emergencies, access to official accurate timely health advisories and information must be widely disseminated in the language that migrants understand. This, uh, we had the case of uh, the advisories being issued by uh, the Qatar government to migrant workers. Uh, this was translated in several languages of the migrant workers and included in the health advisory, like oh, what do you do when you have the symptoms, where do you go, etc. But also uh, provision, assurance that oh, your, your work will not be affected, you will continue to receive your salary, etc. I think that is a good, good way to uh, to inform the migrants that, that this is um, first and foremost for, for health uh, reasons and that has nothing to do with the status of uh, their employment. Um, the other thing is that, uh, that uh, one more lesson is that we should be able to assure the migrants of access to emergency and basic health care and medical services related to the pandemic. We've had several issues of migrants displaying symptoms. Uh, for example, in the Middle East, they thought they had to be to leave the accommodation because this is a shared accommodation and uh, the other workers are becoming paranoid. They went to the hospital, but then they were not admitted to the hospital and they could not go back to the accommodation. So those issues, uh, we don't want a repeat of that, no? So, uh, uh, what as uh, stakeholders uh, in the language that the migrants understand. And again, this is not only a responsibility of the country of destination, but hopefully the our embassies, countries of embassies and consulates of the countries of origin should be available to translate uh, the advisories into the languages that the migrants can, can better understand. And of course, just as relevant is to be able to provide active and working contact details of both of relevant offices in the countries of destination and uh, of the embassies and the consulates. <clears throat> uh, assure migrants access to, uh, I think I mentioned this already, information to affirm that their work status will not be affected. I already mentioned that. And especially uh, employers, and this is again one learning from the pandemic, employers, if their workers must continue working, must be able to provide full protection, personal uh, protective uh, equipment, and hygiene uh, supplies to the workers. Um, Corollarily, uh, there should be assurance that various services of government, both the countries of destination and origin, will continue unhampered, including access to justice, for example, uh, the cases of uh, wage step or unpaid wages, and where the employers use the excuse of the pandemic uh, for not uh, being able to, to pay their workers. Thank you. Uh, that, the other thing, if I may just uh, uh, Andrew wrap up, 
Uh, preventive measures in the context of building back better should be for duty bearers, for the governments to invest on social protection programs, safety net packages that are inclusive of all migrants, regardless of occupation and legal status, to include portability of earned benefits and social security benefits. Improve significantly, this is quite important, to the living and working conditions of the migrants. Invest on livable and humane accommodation for migrant workers at no cost to the workers and prohibit and counter hate speeches, racist narratives, and stigmatization of migrants. And finally, as uh, Elizabeth mentioned, or Liz mentioned, as uh, the UN next uh, week, as the UN member states convene for the I first IMRF, let us use the occasion to bring to the spotlight the situation of the global population on the move and to take to heart the commitment to promote, protect, and fulfill their human rights. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ellen. Um, a lot to think about there. And, and, you know, I think one of the key questions in the pandemic, you know, some of these questions are, are things that have been there a long time, right? I mean, these are, are really needs that have been on the table for a long time, but others are, are a result of the pandemic itself. And what, what Elizabeth Collette referred to is the potential for ending up with a two-tiered system for travel in the world and, and for mobility in the world, which would be enormous concern, right? And, and I think there's some reason to believe that if we don't put thoughtful attention into how we coordinate in restoring mobility, we're going to end up very much disadvantaging the people who, you know, are, are most vulnerable, um, particularly workers going around the world, people migrating, people seeking asylum. And there's going to be a number of, of categories of people that will be particularly adversely affected, while many people who have means will be able to navigate the, the, the morass of, of regulations that are out there. Um, with me, let me turn this with that. Let me turn this over to James Wiltshire, who is the Assistant Director of External Affairs at IATA, and has been the head of policy analysis and a senior economist there as well. And very much looking forward to hearing how you see return to air travel and, and how the pandemic has, you know, how you were navigating the the multiple regulations out there and the beginnings of some coordination and 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 some attempt to rationalize what the requirements are. So let me turn it over to you, James. Thank you very much, Andrew, and uh, great to be with everybody today. I hope you can hear me okay. Um, so the first question is what's holding uh, the return to pre-pandemic levels of air travel? And I think the report put out today really summarizes that very well as Megan showed in her presentation. It's travel rules. In, in a state where we still have nearly 100,000 around the world, that is um, with very little clarity and consistency between them. That's a, a real minefield to navigate for airlines, and I can talk about that in a second but also creates a real lack of confidence and a lack of certainty for passengers as well. So I think that that's probably the, the, the top note. We'll go into that in a, a little bit more um, detail in a second in terms of what that looks, looks like right now. I think the next point I'd like to say is holding us all back in our um, recovery from the pandemic or a climb out of the, the, the depths of the crisis, the most acute phase of the crisis, is a, a, a slowness or a failure to adapt as the exam question has changed. And Megan in her presentation talked about stickiness. Uh, and I think we've, we've really seen that. In particular, um, we would posit that Omicron fundamentally changed the exam question we were being posed by the pandemic because it was so much more transmissible. Um, we saw containment strategies um, failing very quickly. It was very evident very early on with, with Omicron that border measures had very limited impact in slowing the spread of that particular variant, um, given that once it was behind a border, it spread very rapidly. And particularly, um, it became very hard to understand and justify the differential treatment of the border at a time when A, that containment was very obviously less effective. And also we saw economies opening up domestically and in, in fact, in many cases, um, tolerating or accepting or learning to live with whatever the language is, um, uh, high levels of transmission, whether that be because the, the population uh, was largely protected by vaccinations and boosters uh, or, or because there was a recognition that containment was impossible. And so um, that's something that's been, been frustrating and, and suggests, um, as I say, uh, a failure or a slowness to adapt uh, to a different uh, different challenges, I think that's something that if it doesn't isn't resolved could hold us back going forward. 
In terms of where we are right now around the world, we've been tracking uh, a much smaller data set than the, um, than the set that the MPI has been looking at so comprehensively and, and such granular level. We've been looking at the 50 markets, travel markets that are accounted for um, nearly 90% of global air, international air traffic in 2019. Um, and that does show some signs of promise. Uh, in fact, in 11 of those 50 markets accounting for just over 13% of pre-pandemic traffic, there are no border restrictions applied at all. So no quarantine, no testing requirements, no vaccination requirements. Those include a number of countries in Europe, and Maurizio already talked to that, but also um, Argentina and Mexico and Latin America and the Dominican Republic as well. So we're starting to see this return to normal. 26 of those 50 countries, so more than half, are open to vaccinated travelers without testing. And taken together, um, 44 of the 50 are open to vaccinated travelers without quarantine. But that still leaves six of the 50 that have significant travel requirements, by which I basically mean quarantine, uh, even if travelers are, are vaccinated. So still a long way to go. And the next point I, I would say is that the quarantine and the testing, people have talked about the cost of those measures. Um, and the confusion of, of the, uh, the requirements and, and how, when the test needs to be taken and what type of test it needs to be. There's also a lot of um, uncertainty generated by having to do those, those tests. And it's a really big deterrent for travel, particularly the threat of being stranded away from your home country. And so I think one of the challenges to address differently is um, going forward is how do we do surveillance differently in a way that uh, we can uh, as a society, have good monitoring of viruses and variants and so on without having to stick um, swabs up every traveler's noses. Um, so that's one of, one of the questions. I think finally, to move to the, um, the sort of the, the future thinking part of the question and what's needed uh, to have more coordination to do things differently um, next time, whether that be a future variant I think the first thing to say about a future variant is we need to move away from knee-jerk reactions. Um, as I said, you know, Omicron has shown us that border measures are less and less effective um, against COVID-19 at least. By definition, we know that any variant that outcompetes Omicron must be more transmissible than Omicron. And so if border measures fail against Omicron, they're really going to fail against um, a future more transmissible variant. That's actually true, regardless of whether that variant is more severe or not. We may want to keep it out because of, because of its impact, but we're not actually going to be able to. And so the knee-jerk response to go back to measures that have tried and failed um, won't serve us well. We need to think about things differently. Um, we do need to do a lessons learned about what's worked well um, through the pandemic uh, and what hasn't. There's some things certainly in, in air travel that haven't worked and, and really should, should be ditched for the long term. Things like temperature screening and ask, asking people to sign affidavits and so on. There are things that have worked really well, and digital health credentials is one of those. Um, and here's where um, these things need improving. We need uh, what has been developed in the four systems that were mentioned um, being turned into something around a global standard and to support mutual recognition and to support the capacity building in low and middle income countries so that uh, when we have future health emergencies, um, everybody has the infrastructure ready to go. Um, and, and, and use uh, much more quickly. And I think it's a really important distinction I'd like to make between having the measures, something like the European DCC, in use on a day-to-day -day basis, probably not needed now, as um, is the case for much of interest new travel. That's not the same as ditching the infrastructure that supports that, um, those certificates for when we might need them again, because we know that we're going to have future health emergencies, whether it be COVID, whether it be um, diseases that we know about or diseases that we don't know about um, yet. So I think that's really important, including the work of the WHO and the digital yellow card and so on. And then I think the very, very final point, uh, I just fully support this, the, um, the principles the NPI uh, has talked about uh, in terms of future, future planning. I talked about as transparency and consistency and communication, but I think they're very closely aligned with um, the, the MPI principle. So I think that's a, it's a really valuable contribution and, and fully support them. Thank you very much.
Thank you to everyone. This is a great, uh, great conversation, very diverse conversation because there's a lot of issues on the table. If anyone wants to join from the audience, you can go to the Q&A function, the question and answer function, which you will see, depending what device you're using, it's usually at the top somewhere and it says Q&A and you can type a question to the panelists. Um, we're only gonna take this meeting um, for another 10 minutes or so. So we're, we'll take a limited number of questions. Um, and I'm gonna start with one um, for whoever wants to, to, to take it. But, you know, I, I guess one of the, the, the questions, what is the forum out there that allows us to have conversations among countries about reopening? I know that's a loaded question, um, but you know what, uh, the answer may have to be, what are the four of? Because I, I, I think the answer is there isn't one, right? But what are the opportunities out there for the conversations, the necessary conversations that have to be happening across borders right now? And I see Elizabeth Collette has her hand up, so I'll turn to you. Thanks. I mean, I think at IOM, this is a question we've been asking ourselves, not least because this falls across so many different sectors. We're talking about the travel industry writ large and particularly the private sector involved in that and, and the fact that so much of this has fallen on their shoulders. We're talking about health expertise and how we bring that in. We're talking about border management systems and, and, and those, those parts. And then we're also talking about, about different government um, departments. I mean, in different countries, this has been led in by different ministries. In the UK, the Department of Transport in the Netherlands, the Department of Defense, as far as I understand, you know, in, in different countries, it's different places. So trying to bring this together in a forum is, is not an easy prospect. And I would say that's the first point is, is building that forum where you can discuss these things, I think is challenging. The second is some venues have been created, but aren't necessarily prioritizing this issue right now. And I don't say that critically, I say that because there are other pressing priorities. You know, obviously the WHO is leading the pandemic treaty and the review of the international health regulations, and that includes some discussion of mobility and mobility restrictions, but it's pretty far down the agenda and, and, and pretty general. And then IOM has been working with the ICAO and IMO in, in some of the UN crisis management task teams, for example, to, to talk about travel and mobility, but that's sort of one piece of it. Um, you know, obviously, as, as, a, as a migration organization, we're concerned with people on the move. We're not dealing with the broader constituency of travelers, though I think the cross-section of issues is, 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 is covered then within, within that, that, that issue of people on the move. So I think that there is a need to create a forum. There's a need to think carefully about how all those constituencies are represented in a way that is useful for them. Um, and I say that particularly because I think the private sector needs to be a strong voice in this because they have driven a lot of convergence and a lot of the interoperability. Um, I think one of the pieces that certainly from IOM's perspective is we would be happy to support that conversation and bring that across the sectors in collaboration with the relevant entities. We would also see, and, and this data collection that, that IOM has been putting together has been part of a sort of a baseline for thinking, well, do we just need, at the very least, a forum for information exchange, a little bit like what's been created within the EU, but a place where governments can come and say, this is what we're planning to do, this is why we're planning to do it, and, and that early warning so people can find that information, because certainly in the early months of the pandemic, you had um, very few for us to, 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 to exchange that information. But then also in later, now we have multiple multiple arenas at regional level, at global level. And I think I think that's one thing to think about. But I do think it's a conversation that I hope will be an, a live conversation at the IMRF next week, partly because it does have such a significant impact for migrants and other people on the move. But I recognize that it's a conversation that can take place in many different places. And, and the key will be trying to bring that, some of that together. Thank you. There are two other questions out there. So I'm going to add them in. One is, is who should be responsible for emitting digital certificates? And the other is, should we be concerned about digitalization, about the, the dependence on digitalization? Um, but if anyone wants to answer any of those three questions, feel free to jump in. James, you look like you're diving in here, so dive. Okay, and let me have a, have a go. I think two things to say. I think who should be um, issuing certificates, I, I think is less interesting than uh, 
how do you ensure mutual recognition? So standardization of the, uh, at least a small number, a subset of, of those digital certificates and the protocols for recognizing them between, uh, between countries rather than necessarily having a single entity um, that, uh, that issues them all. I think the other thing I'd say on the question of should we be scared of digitization, I think absolutely not. I think um, digitization has got, um, been one of, for me, one of the real success stories of, of what's been developed um, during, during COVID actually is, is, is incredibly helpful. Um, we've, got to the, we've got to a really good point just at the time we stopped, stopped needing the um, certificates quite as much, but that doesn't uh, mean it's not a great achievement. Um, and I think the fact that um, maybe a majority of people will be traveling with digitization, certainly in the air travel space, actually helps uh, free up time and space and resource to handle manually those people who can't use digital tools. So I think we'd never um, advocate for digital tools being an exclusive uh, pathway to travel. I think that would be that would be wrong. But actually, um, it frees up resource, frees up handling time. You can't return at scale, as Megan said at the top, without digitization. Um, and if you've got ninety percent of your travelers and, and, and so on, your flow. Um, being processed contactless through remotely from the border, it means you can spend more time on the people that uh, can't use those digital tools or need uh, extra assistance. Thank you, James. Appreciate it. Anyone else want to come into the conversation? Uh, Megan. Actually, Mar Maurizio, why don't we go to Maurizio first? I'm going to turn to you for, for final words, Megan, anyway. Um, Maurizio. No, just very briefly on the, on the, on the questions. The first one, uh, who should be responsible for issuing the digital certificates? I think that has not been really an, an, an issue in the past months, basically in the member states in the European Union, where the, the, the health authorities, the ones who were closest to uh, the, 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 uh, the services uh, doing the, the, the vaccination or the testing. Uh, should we be afraid of digitalization? Well, depends uh, on how you look at it. First is, uh, I mean, for people afraid of, of digitalization, you can also present this uh, digital COVID certificates in paper format, so that wouldn't be a problem. And secondly, digitalization is an important element, I think, to, afford, to avoid uh, fraud and forgery, because uh, we've seen a lot of, 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 of uh, uh, examples of fraud when you have, uh, uh, when you have when you had paper formats before the digital certificate was uh, was uh, in place, so I think that's uh, that's answering the the, the two questions uh, put forward there. Great, and there is another question that came in on disruptions brought by the pandemic that have a particular impact on migrants, extend far beyond travel restrictions. There are disruptions in labor markets, health impacts, the virus itself. How do we parse out the impacts of the travel restrictions versus those of other factors? I don't know, Ellen, if you want to jump in on that, and then I'll go to Megan to close up. Yeah, uh, maybe, yeah. I think, uh, of course, definitely the impact of uh, the pandemic is uh, varied, but uh, for people on the move, travel restrictions is uh, a very basic thing because uh, for, for people who wants to, to Cross the borders for work purposes. The very first thing, first consideration is how they will be able to go from one place to the other, and this is where you encounter all these problems that you have to fulfill the health protocols that are now being part of the requirements for you want to cross the borders. So, and then of course all the other issues uh, also have to to go with it uh, during the time the height of the pandemic. Uh, restrictions on mobility would also mean being starved, you know, if they cannot go out and, and get their food. And of course, if they cannot uh, uh, work because uh, 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 work, the, 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 the companies have, have shut down and all those things. So mobility is very crucial in, in, in this case. And of course, even if they wanted to, to go back home, and we have a lot of these migrants who held off their coming back home, the Philippines hoping that the pandemic will end very soon. And then they ended up 17 months stranded, no work, no pay. And, and that was also a problem. Yeah. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. Appreciate that. And Megan, let me turn to you for final words. So, I mean, you can answer the three questions, but also any other reflection you want to give as we look forward on the future of mobility and migration and the management of borders as we continue to wrestle with COVID. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks for giving me the last word. Um, I just wanted to say about the, the digitization question. The one thing we didn't really talk about today was that also there were some exclusionary aspects to do with just accessing domestic services. So it's not just a travel issue, it's also the use of digital health credentials and the way that they might have shaped people's access to services. I think that's one reason we need to get this stuff right. So it's not that we should be afraid of it, we just need to think really much harder about um, interoperability, but also about the sort of domestic use of, of health credentials and how that affects travelers, visitors, new migrants, the unauthorized population, you know, all sorts of people on the move and. Um, Lawrence um, Huang uh, um, in, in my team uh, published a paper on this recently, which is great and um, you should all, all read. Um, but, you know, we should also note that paper certificates can also be a source of bias here. I mean, there were concerns about the way that African vaccine credentials in paper format might be um, a sort of source of bias at the point of transport carriers and, and border guards. So it's not really that digitization itself is the, is the challenge. Um, just another point to finish with, you know, Liz talked earlier, and uh, this is the kind of, I think, the, the bigger questions to end with, Andrew, about how this issue can sometimes fall below the political parapet, and I think that's a bit of a risk right now that we think that everything's opening up and we think that this, um, this conversation has been put to bed, and I really don't think it has, and I think that, you know, you asked about what the right fora were for having these conversations, but we're still actually not in a place where we've done the sort of full accounting of what the best approaches were. If you are going to use travel measures, how long do you do it for? Do you have a sort of a fact finding few days and a very time limited use of an early lockdown? How do you protect people in that scenario and make sure that those who are left stranded are supported and have sufficient income to tie them through that moment? How do you communicate those things? Um, how do you make sure that you have public compliance with travel measures? You know, these are all things that we've been trying to dig into, but I think that the evidence is not there and we can't really get to a point where we ask about consensus and how to move forward until we've done the kind of full accounting of what the best approaches were. And so that's what I think we need going forward. Thank you, Megan. Um, and thank you for, for leading the effort on, on the report. The report is, there's a link in the, uh, in, in that you can consult there. Thank you to Elizabeth Collette and the IOM for, for all the collaboration and especially the DTM team in London from the IOM on, on and pulling this together and their excellent work in actually tracking all of this over time, um, both for analysis and for practical applications. Um, and thank you to our panelists. I mean, really great to have you with us. A, a wealth of perspectives. Um, you know, thank you, Maurizio. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, James. Um, and of course, uh, Liz Collette, Elizabeth Collette, and, and Megan Benton. Um, wonderful discussion. Thank you for those of you who joined us. And we look forward to, to seeing you uh, soon to continue this conversation. Take care.